I'm so grateful and thankful for their support. And I feel like that support is symbolic of like this happiness and joy that they have to see me embracing my culture in ways that I haven't in like the traditional journey towards success that they had been leading me to. And I think it's really ironic, like thinking about the pursuit of the American dream for an immigrant family. You do trade off a lot and sacrifice a lot of your own culture to pursue that. And I think that's a really sad reality of what it takes to be really focused in school and to assimilate in school and to pursue certain pathways requires a trade-off of yourself and of your own like personal culture. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name's Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. This week, we continue our conversation with Rachel Lucero. She is the creator and the host of The Sago Show, a Filipino food show that explores history, culture, and identity through Filipino food recipes. Rachel is a Filipino-American, and as a former Teach for America Corps member, she shares a strong passion for education and social justice for all, especially for those who are marginalized and underserved. Last week, we dropped episode 92, part one of the interview where Rachel shared about her personal upbringing and the genesis of the Sago Show. This week, we dive into some of the specifics of Filipino cuisine and some of Rachel's lessons learned from her food journey so far. She shares about the concept of indigenization, a beautiful framework to understand the evolution of cultural cuisine and adaptation. We also discuss the complexities of fusion cuisine the importance of taking action and the process of overcoming perfectionist tendencies. We learned so much in this episode and hope you enjoy this conversation with Rachel Lucero. Thank you. This conversation as a whole, I think, reminds me of one of the episodes Benoit and I recorded a few months ago. And we talked about an idea of a porthole analogy in that we kind of all see life through our own portholes, right? And the more we can, I guess, open new sides of it or almost talking to new people with new perspectives, specifically from diverse backgrounds, is almost shining more of the porthole to be seen through. You know, understanding new perspectives from different cultures, for me, has been a practice to kind of see a more equal and holistic view of life. You know, I think we all recognize that we see life through our own projections and lenses. And as a white male raised in the Philadelphia suburbs, I definitely recognize I come with an enormous amount of both privilege and I think more importantly, responsibility. Right. I think the way that this world is going these days, we almost need to leap or we as white males need to lean into that responsibility to elevate voices around us, both from other genders, other walks of life, other backgrounds. And I think the idea I want to bring in there is just Filipino, both culture and food as a whole. I think you've given a lot of really awesome specific examples. Like I watched your banana ketchup video last night huge fan made me very hungry late at night i'm proud to admit but you know more on the holistic filipino side 
what elements of their culture or even their food traditions do you think are most resonant or even would be most beneficial to applying to American culture or, you know, worldly culture in general? Well, I guess I immediately think about this framework that uh, Doreen Fernandez, who, which is, who was a Filipino food writer, created, and that structure was called indigenization, and it was a way to understand the evolution of Filipino food. And the, the phases of indigenization in this framework were that first, a food is introduced into um, from another country to the Philippines. So we can say like there were Chinese settlers um, in the Philippines, for example. So the Chinese bring a dish. And then the second phase is that it gets indigenized in terms of like native ingredients and native preparations are now evolving the dish that was originally brought by another country. And then basically this cycle happens over time that this original dish that was, you know, looked completely different in its home country is now made Filipino because of the preparations and ingredients that are introduced to it. And so now it's this completely different dish. And I think that the helpful part of it is that Doreen asserts that that dish is still Filipino because it's not the same as what it was in its homeland. It's something that has had native preparations, native ingredients introduced to it. And so lumpia is really, the Filipino egg roll is, is very different from an egg roll in a different country or what egg rolls look like in, in China where they were then indigenized in the Philippines. I think that that's an important, it was an important framework for me because it helps me understand that, you know, even though there's a lot of dishes in Filipino cuisine that probably seem borrowed or, as Ben was saying before, gifted, like adobo, you know, we have a lot of Spanish influence dishes like empanadas and machado, where there are these Spanish versions of it. The Filipino version is beautiful and you know, tasty in its own right, and it is different. And I think that that's really important to translate to your own identity as well, because I think that even though the Philippines was colonized, you see so much indigenous tradition that persists despite that. And there are many indigenous dishes that are still enjoyed, that have no colonial influence. And I think that's what makes Filipino food really beautiful is that there's this persistence of old tradition, despite, you know, almost 400 years of being colonized. And that's what makes Filipino food so complex. And I think how I translate that to my own identity is that, you know, I'm not just a girl from a Spanish colonized country. Like I cringe thinking that that's how I thought of myself before, you know, because I would see Spanish influenced words in Tagalog, I would just think, oh, it's because of Spanish colonization. We're, you know, we're just a country that was colonized by Spain. And it, it's so much more than that when you unlock that there are things that were influenced in the Philippines, but that there is an evolution over time in these dishes and that we can truly call those things Filipino. And I think that that's like a hard thing to grapple with because I think a lot of other Filipino Americans could relate to this, that whenever anyone asks you, 
what is Filipino food exactly? Like, how would you describe it? It's really difficult because you just think to like, okay, well, there's there's a lot of Spanish influence. There's um, a lot of Chinese influence. So yeah, there's just a lot of things borrowed. And we focused on that external influence. And really the beauty is in what I was saying before is the indigenous traditions, indigenous flavors, indigenous ingredients that help make Filipino food so, so different and complex. Yeah, I think the beauty is an integration, right? It's like what you alluded to, whether it's food, whether it's our identity, it's like the idea of original thought. Humans are definitely capable of original thoughts, but even this show are you are a lot of people who are living in this 21st century. Fortunately and unfortunately for the better or worse, we tend to borrow the ideas and the thoughts came before us. And we integrate that with our own ideology, with our own idiosyncrasies, and those become our own ideals. Those become our own beliefs. And we all obviously articulate that with our own flavors. Um, and I think with all these countries borrowing the land of Philippines for so long, that's the least you can do, borrow their ingredients and make it into your own, right? To make it and to have that ownership. But there is no ownership without the pride, without you subscribing into that. Begin with what you didn't have before, but sounds like you now have you know, both this exceptional pride for your country because of the study of the history. Um, I have a personal curiosity, it's not related, and I take full ownership if it doesn't land anywhere. Uh, how do you personally view fusion food? More specifically, Filipino fusion food, how do you view it? Um, do you view it as one of those like pineapples on pizza sort of mindset? Or how do you personally view the uh, fusion approach? Because I also have my mixed feelings towards it. So I'd love to hear uh, your view as a historian of the Filipino food culture. Yeah, and I, I'm excited to hear your thoughts as well. My thoughts on this have really changed over the last few years because I used to really, really reject the idea of fusion food because I thought that, you know, Filipino food is in its authentic, I hate the word authentic, and we <laughs> talk about that too, but in its quote, authentic self is so tasty and beautiful, complex. I, I want people to have the unadulterated version of Filipino food. And so I really didn't like the idea of fusion food. I think my idea of that is, is very different now, especially since I've moved to San Francisco and see in the Bay Area so many awesome Filipinos that are doing fusion in ways that I've really never thought of. And I, I think that here in the Bay, you know, you go to Senor Sisig and they make Sisig burritos. They do like a Sisig California burrito that has fries on it. They they have even like a equivalent of a crunch wrap that has seasick in it. And it's like so amazing because I would never think of that. And I think that before I really didn't like the idea of fusion food because I thought and felt that there was a misinterpretation. What I've come to is that it, it really does matter who is doing the fusion. And the reason I say that is that I've definitely seen examples of Filipino fusion done by white chefs that I don't think they understand the implications of what they're doing, or they may not understand the beauty of the original dish. You know, one example is, is an old example where in Bon Appetit magazine, they they had a halo halo, an ode to halo halo recipe. And instead of the native ingredients of coconut and ube and red beans and leche flan, like 
they they put all sorts of stuff like popcorn and like gummy bears and blueberries and lime juice and i remember like my experience of of seeing this because i i thought at first oh my gosh bon appetit magazine made hollow hollow let me click on that and it was so different i think all that is to say so i think that there's a difference between appropriation and fusion for sure and i think it does it is important and it does matter who is the person doing the fusion and do they understand like what they're doing because i, I love these um food trucks and restaurants in the Bay Area that are doing fusion and it's done by Filipino Americans because it's kind of the celebration of like who we are as Filipinos in America that we grew up having Filipino food and we also you know ate American food and I think that that's so different from if a white chef is doing that fusion but I am super excited to hear what your thoughts are too. Yeah I uh I definitely love to hear about Aiden's perspective if any but uh, I was similar. I used to be because I'm very interested in food documentaries and maybe not the history to your sense, but I'm interested in the history of the dish specifically and how uh, different chefs take different approaches to tackle these seemingly unrelated ingredients into this beautiful alchemy, right? So for those reasons, I at first used to be very anti-fusion food. And then I remember when Chef Roy Chang came up with Kogi, the first fusion uh, Korean taco barbecue dish, I remember it took the culinary world by the storm. Because I think at that time, he is known as the godfather of food truck, at least in the United States, more notably in California, Los Angeles regions. But I think to the best of my understanding, up until Roy Chen came along, a lot of chefs, to your point, uh, I think tackled the avenue of fusion, not incorrectly per se, but improperly. Or maybe I, I don't think they did the diligent effort to do those dishes justice. And obviously after Roy Chen, a lot of different chefs came along. So I'm, I currently share your position as well. I do think that if the intention truly shines through and they understand the mastery of the ingredients and the culture and what it represents, when they combine two different culture and two different individual individualized experiences into one. Um, and some of my current favorite dishes are fusion food because of that intentionality. So. Uh, I, I do share a similar uh, belief as you, but at first I was definitely repulsed by that. Um, I was like, oh man. And, and there is a specific uh, dim sum restaurant in Philadelphia that Aiden knows what I'm alluding to. I feel very mixed feelings. I have a lot of qualms with that restaurant, even though their dishes are really great. Um, it's, it's a dim sum restaurant and they have a lot of arts and the owners are Jewish, unfortunately. So I don't know how I feel about that, but their dishes are great. But yeah, there are some restaurants that I think I could, that I believe could take a more diligent effort uh, retackling the fusion venue. Yeah, it's been really interesting to hear both of you talk through these ideas as someone who is Italian, Irish, and German. There's a ton of fusion that goes on within those cuisines. I mean, to Ben's point, maybe pineapple on pizza, but I feel like that's as extreme as it gets. But, you know, I think the two ideas that come up for me are both acknowledgement and celebration. You know, I think if both the restaurant and the chef are able to both acknowledge what culture they're bringing food influences in from, and then almost more importantly, celebrating them, right? Like it's one thing to just completely reorient and make something like when you said that hollow hollow recipe, they replaced red beans and coconut with popcorn. I like that doesn't even make sense <laughs> in my mind, but I think if there's like an intentional shift or an intentional celebration of old ingredients of indigenous recipes or even food culture 
then to me, fusion seems appropriate. I mean, I've definitely had loads of fusion foods that are just completely new. Um, the, I guess, business mind in me really admires like the, almost the innovative element of like seeing two seemingly completely unrelated things and making something that's you know both beautiful tasty and just truly creative and one of the things that you mentioned earlier when talking about fusion was you know certain qualms you had with the word authenticity i think to me the juxtaposition of fusion and authenticity especially in the context of cultural traditions and cultural food styles definitely fascinates me so i'd love to kind of hear your thoughts around the word authenticity context of either food culture or even personal identity and yeah i have a lot of thoughts about the term authenticity <laughs> uh, i think back to a documentary i watched recently it's on hulu it's called ulam which in tagalog means main dish or entree like your main food that you're having that's accompanied with rice but this documentary is about the journey of several filipinos in america establishing their own restaurants their own filipino restaurants and the difficulties with that there's this one part where they're discussing this idea of authenticity and the struggle of replicate these foods that they only have memories of. How do you make the food that you're serving to others taste like your own memories? You know, when someone comes into your restaurant and they say that doesn't taste like my own memories, how can we call anything authentic really? Because one thing about Filipino food is that, and I'm sure this resonates for other cultures as well, is that something like adobo paired differently virtually in any in any household. Um, everyone does it a little differently. And so people are always really particular about adobo because they have a memory associated with the dish. And if something doesn't taste exactly like it, you know, it doesn't taste authentic to them. But there's 7,000 islands in the Philippines, over 7,000 islands, many different regional cultures. The adobos that are produced from different regions don't taste similar to each other. And so it's really hard when you are in the United States and you're serving adobo on a plate to someone. The word authenticity kind of is impossible to achieve because someone is just going to have a different flavor memory of that. And it's going to be different from the thing that you're creating. And so I don't really like the word authenticity with food because I think it flattens an entire country's like regional offerings for food. Um, and it also, you know, doesn't take into account that the person making this just might have a different spin on it. And that doesn't make it less authentic if they use a different ingredient. They might have had to use that ingredient because of circumstances that they were in. I think a lot about my mom when she, you know, came to the States and was living in Washington State. You know, she's not going to be able to get the same ingredients that she could in the Philippines. And even if she did, it's not going to taste the same because it might not be grown here or as fresh as one that you could have in the Philippines. So a Filipino dish that's made here is inherently going to, to taste different. And does it make it less authentic? No. And I, I think it's, it's not a productive term to use anymore for food just because of like people's experiences, the ingredients, and the regionality of cuisines makes it you know, impossible to, to put that term on something. I love that point. And I, I think there's an interesting through line almost to the beginning of this conversation around 
almost internal versus external internal authenticity or like being true to oneself versus like what other people expect or what other people want or enjoy most and i think that you know adobo recipe speaks beautifully to it of like maybe someone's cooking as authentically as possible to their own context to their own upbringing it's you know the recipe that's been passed down for hundreds of years but then they hand it to someone else and that tastes differently from what they expect adobo to be so like that through line in between like ultimately the question authentic to who is the one that really comes up for me yeah and hearing that story reminds me of something that we talk a lot on this show which is that language is a paintbrush it's like the idea that we need to be impeccable with our words because of the gravity and the magnitude that words and language carries. And of course, language is not the paintbrush, but it is one of the primary paintbrush that we all wield day to day to express our feelings, express our experiences. But in your story, it's actually the contrast to that where yes, language is a paintbrush, but in your sense, it actually limiting the expression of Filipino food. Because like language is such a powerful tool and depending on how you wield it, it has different outcomes. So for your case, Rachel, by painting certain Filipino dishes as authentic or the lack thereof, you can either uphold and celebrate the dish for what it is, or you can either dismiss the entire nuances of what that dish means to the curator, to the chef. But I do sense a very intricate role that the language is playing with how Filipino is perceived by some other people based on their own slices of experiences. And I definitely never associated qualms with authenticity, even with food. So this is definitely a, some food for thought and pun intended, of course. Well, I, I'm thinking a lot now about my intense with the Sago show, which in part is to help other Filipinos access their own food. You know, if someone's living really far from home or they haven't had Sinigang in a long time, you know, hopefully they can use my video to make it for themselves at home. Something that I experienced in this journey of learning to cook these different Filipino dishes and one that I've heard echoed by some of my friends is that when you put a recipe out there, you're really concerned about getting it right. A lot of Filipinos I've talked to don't even want to start cooking or feel, feel scared to start cooking Filipino food because if their parents make it perfectly, why would you, why would you even try, you know? And I do want to encourage people to, to cook anyway, despite that, those fears, because I was really worried about that before. And I described the process of, you know, being on FaceTime with my mom, making sure that everything was exactly right, trying to learn these dishes through just photos and screenshots of my grandmother's <laughs> recipe cards. I think that people are, are often nervous that what they produce won't really taste right. I think to overcome that fear for, for myself, I practiced a lot and there was stuff that I tasted that I was like, no, this doesn't taste right at all. <laughs> but I think that with practice, I've been able to get a lot better. And you know what, I've made my own renditions of adobo that, that my family really loves and acknowledge that it tastes different from something that they might've had before, but tastes, tastes different because I made it. And that doesn't make what I'm I'm producing less or more authentic. It's just something that I made. And I think that that is true of any, you know, aspiring home cook. Don't be afraid to start cooking just because you're scared that 
it's not going to come out exactly like your memories because honestly it, it won't and so what you make is going to be true to you and if we're going to use the word authenticity i mean aiden was saying it's you know what's authentic to you yeah that's such an important reminder i think not just for home cooks but really tackling anything new and maybe that could be a bit of a segue into diving into the youtube channel a bit in that you know, I think it's so often easy to get caught in paralysis by analysis, right? Especially as we're, you know, early in 2022, say people are looking to do some kind of accomplishment or goal that they hadn't before, right? Say you're going to run a 10 mile race. You could spend two months looking at what type of shoes you're going to go by. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's just so many ways that you can get caught in like the planning or the research or, you know, drawing back to your YouTube experience. You could probably look at how to optimize Google AdWords to get your show promoted. And like, you know, there's numerous things, what camera to buy, what mic to get. Um, but really like taking that first step forward, that was a big, I guess, obstacle that we faced in the early days of Discover More was like, what are we going to talk about? What's the mission? What's the vision? Like, what are we doing here? But really that step of moving forward was one that, you know, creates forward momentum, that action really moves forward, which to your point around cooking is really the only way, you know, you're not going to be able to tell if we're a good chef or even improve our culinary capabilities if we're not in fact cooking. So would love to kind of hear how you navigated that both on the cooking side and then, I mean, personally curious around the YouTube side, because when you first told me, you said, oh, I'm just decided to make a YouTube as a creator. That's like belly flopping in the deep end, of just <laughs> like really going for it. So I would love to hear, you know, some of your experience from that early on days of deciding you were going to make this and then ultimately how you actually started making videos without getting caught in the weeds of just analyzing and making sure the recipes were right, all that stuff. You know, it's one thing to start cooking, but to start videotaping and presenting your cooking to me is just really admirable. And I would love to hear some of the process or the internal narratives you were having. When I, you know, was setting out in the year 2020, <laughs> January, not really knowing what was going to happen. My intention was to come out of 2020 with my own YouTube channel. And I knew it was going to be a really treacherous journey because I don't have formal content creation experience, video editing experience. But, you know, as a kid, I actually always loved all of, like some of the individual components that go into creating a YouTube channel. I always really loved like filming silly videos of me and my cousins and my sister. We would like edit them on Windows Movie Maker, um, <laughs> like videos of our dolls and stuff. I talked about this with others before, but since I was little, I always wanted to like have my own talk show. That was like one of my mini dreams because if you were around me as a child, I was just always, I, I talk about myself as being really quiet, but that was kind of like in the classroom because when I was at home and I'm just like buttering my toast, I would be just talking to this imaginary audience of people who is watching my cooking show of, <laughs> of me preparing toast. And my sister would always talk about how it's really annoying. Like, who are you talking to? But this all started because we, we actually had to film our own little cooking show when we were in first grade. And I made this Filipino dish, champarado, which is, um, I just made this the other week for my family. It's a, a chocolate rice breakfast dish, kind of like a chocolate oatmeal, but it uses rice. I love champarado. So I, I made that in first grade and I was like cooking on the stovetop and my mom was, was recording me. 
And I don't know what it was about that project, but after that, I was like always just talking to myself and talking to a, a fake audience. <laughs> um, and so there were just like different elements that I felt like, okay, YouTube channel, I can do this. I, I like to internally narrate what I'm doing and I do kind of like making videos. So why not put it together? And I also thought that it would be a way to keep myself accountable to what I was intending to do, which was to find these connections between food and history. What was the second part of your question? Keeping momentum through having action, like the fear of starting and the enthusiasm for planning versus the, you know, actual moving forward of taking action towards those things. So actually putting pedal to the metal and, and like starting to create my YouTube channel. It's funny because I probably had like dozens of hours just writing out my ideas on paper and it virtually amounts to, to nothing compared to any amount of time on screen. So I planned out by this date, I'm going to have filmed episode one, Adobo. By this date, I'm going to release it. I would spend a lot of time editing my videos and being worried about it being perfect, like editing things to the millisecond, making sure that everything looks clean. And at some point I just had to tell myself that like, it's okay if it's not perfect. I could edit this for five years and never release it and it will be nothing compared to just putting it out there now in its imperfect state. And so I really just had to push myself, which was hard because I am definitely a perfectionist and want to always, you know, be correct and, and say the right things. And so it was hard to just click the publish button that day. But I'm really glad that I did. And I, I have to remind myself continually that probably no one's going to notice this extra half second on this clip that I'm having trouble with editing. Just get it out there so that people can watch it. And I don't know if you both have this experience, but I do look back at my old content sometimes and I'm just like, oh, I'm like, I can't believe I've grown so much as a video, video editor and my skills have just improved a lot. And so it's like almost cringy to like look back at my, some of my old content since I've improved a lot. But again, content that's published is a thousand times better than content that is just in my notes app. So I just had to push myself to not be absolutely perfect. It's hard. Yeah, the audio fatigue and I had to, you know, reconcile with the important lesson you just alluded to and accept it fully that whether I smash my four laptop screens because of the audio fatigue or zero, listeners not going <laughs> to know. So it's better to save myself the four laptops worth of money to not smash my laptop. But yeah, I think um, it speaks to a very important thing on a macro level where, especially with social media being such a glamorizing avenue for so many aspiring content creators or influencers, whatever you want to call them, when the outside world perceive the curated product, whether it's for you, these snack size, very aesthetic videos, educational, or whether it's our podcast episodes on different platforms, people will never understand the nuance and the actual journey the actual pain, the actual lessons, the actual process. Um, so that's why I think it's important for us to just remind ourselves, whether it's with the editing that I do or whether it's a newsletter and other projects that Aiden do for the show, I think it's this creative process, this dance, we're always constantly doing, right? Between creating versus consumptions, how much effort do we wanna dedicate for this specific episode? Uh, because we're still grappling with life at the same time, always. 
Uh, I want to ask you a question that you alluded to during your storytelling. You talked about last week you were preparing this chocolate dish for a family um, because I think you're, you represent something very unique as a guest. Uh, we've interviewed different food experts before on this show. We've interviewed food scientists. We've interviewed numerous uh, executive chefs who are at the best in their industries. They started with the end in mind and to them food was the angle and the vessel they chose. But for you, food is the vessel to deliver the history and the education and the passion that you share, uh, that you learned from learning more about yourself, right? Who, who is Rachel Lucero? Or who, who do you mean to yourself? But the uh, benefits that's maybe not anticipated for you is the joy that you're able to give to your family through cooking, right? Because I don't really cook for my family because when my mom is here, why would I cook? And it's not just for my own laziness sake, I'm doing it for the utility of my family members. Like it's gonna be extra suffering for them during the holiday season. So I never cook for my family, but I also don't have the passion and the skill sets that you cultivated through your YouTube channel. So I just wanna ask you quickly because family means a lot for me as well. And as Asian Americans, family is obviously an important pillar. Uh, but I'm curious about personally, how did your family and how was that experience like? Because of the Sago show, now you have pretty good skill sets at curating a few dishes. Um, so how did they receive it? I know they, I know your family loved your adobo dish they created, but I just wanna ask about that experience as a whole of this unexpected, I guess, benefits of having a Sago show. You know, it's, it's really funny thinking about this because uh, I talked previously about my journey, like entering education, how mad my parents were um, <laughs> and how difficult that journey was. When I started the Sago show, my parents were like all for it. They were so excited by it. I'm like, I mean, I think granted, I, I do this in my free time and I, I have a day job. And so this is, I think, unlike other guests, I'm, I'm fortunate to have like this free time that I get to dedicate to this passion project. But my parents are my biggest fans of the Sago show. My dad used to, you know, text me five minutes after I would release my episodes and he'd be like, I was, I was view number one <laughs> and they would listen to the recordings of the talks that I did. And, um, we're just like so happy. They're always sharing my stuff on Facebook. I'm so grateful and thankful for their support. And I feel like that support is symbolic of like this happiness and joy that they have to see me embracing my culture in ways that I haven't in like the traditional journey towards success that they had been leading me to. And I think it's really ironic, like thinking about, you know, the pursuit of the American dream for an immigrant family. You do trade off a lot and sacrifice a lot of your own culture to pursue that. And I think that's a really sad reality of what it takes to be really focused in school and to assimilate in school and to pursue certain pathways requires a trade-off of yourself and of your own like personal culture. And so I think that when my parents saw me working on the show and calling them frequently a lot of times to bug <laughs> them about recipes, I think that it was like really fulfilling to me fulfilling for me to hear their joy from from seeing me now celebrate my culture after you know many years of feeling very distant from it and so i was i was surprised that they were super supportive i mean not to shade them but like i just didn't know what they would think about it but they are my biggest fans and i'm so so thankful to them 
That's beautiful on many, many levels. And I think it definitely, you know, to me demands the question of like, how does that inform your thoughts around tying those two ideas together in like the, you know, raising kids, teaching people kind of environment? Like how has your experience almost finding your Filipino identity through cooking informed the way that you plan to share that with members of your family going forward or even other Filipino Americans through your channel? I think a lot about how much of my struggle I, I don't want my children, my future family to struggle through. And kind of like I talked about before, I don't resent my parents for the things that they felt they had to do. Things that they ended up doing, you know, because of their own traumas and their own situations. I really don't resent what I had to go through. However, I do want my kids to love being Filipino-American and feel that it's so important for me to do all of this work now so that I, you know, give them as little of my own trauma as possible. I know it's never, it's never going to be perfect. We're always doing the work, but I don't want my kids to go through the same experience of feeling like they had to minimize themselves or, or not feel connected to their culture. And so I feel like that's the importance in me doing this now is that for, for my kids, I want them to have a different experience than I had. And not to say that I'm resentful at all of experiences that I, I had to go through. As a fellow Asian American, once again, as the offspring, the privilege of my parental sacrifices of what they've gone through, I like to view us, right? Even for Aiden, any of us who are the offsprings of our parents who pursued the American dream, I view us as a seeds of sacrifice. And I think a lot of us owe it to our parents. Like they went through a series of tremendous unspeakable trauma and sacrifices so that we are where we are. So in a way, the way I interpreted that is we owe it to our parents to fulfill our personal fulfillment, to fulfill our missions, personal missions, personal mission statements, and wherever that path may be. Otherwise, what did our parents sacrifice everything for? They didn't sacrifice everything, so we're in the exact same situation. They sacrifice, so we are elevated above that through their sacrifices. So yeah, what you said resonates with me deeply. I want to go back into what you shared, Rachel, in terms of you alluded to this hidden cost, this trade-off between personal values and personal culture versus this achievement culture that all of us are grappling with because of the way the United States put a certain framework of success on a pedestal. So I'd love you for you to like bring us into that thought processes of yours and just tell us more about what do you mean by this personal cost? What do you mean by this trade-off that you were alluding to earlier? Well, and I'll preface this by saying that my experience, you know, is my own. I'll only speak on behalf of what I went through. And I know that not everyone is just going to be able to relate to it. But what I went through was that in my K-12 education, there was so much pressure to assimilate, especially when you're in a class where everyone else is white. I think that, you know, when you're a kid, you want to have fun and fit in and have friends. So you're going to naturally make choices and behave in a way that is going to lead you to that. And I think often results in you as a child minimizing and, and hiding parts of yourself that don't fit what's going on at school. It's kind of crushing to me that I think back to when I was when I was growing up, my mom, one time she, she asked me, do you feel ashamed to be Filipino? And at the time I was like, no, obviously no. 
I didn't know that until I was an adult, I was doing things, whether consciously or unconsciously, to minimize that part of myself to fit in at school. And then the other component of that is that, you know, I think my high school experience was one we had to go through like a really rigorous program. You know, you're taking like AP classes, you have a ton of homework. I would come home after doing sports because I felt I had to do sports to get into a good college. And I would come home and do homework until 1 a.m., 2 a.m. I'd wake up, you know, spend very little time with my family, go to school and do that all over again. And at the time, I thought I thought that was the right thing. That was what I had to do in order to meet my family's dream. You know, like I had to dedicate myself to school to get into a good college, to secure a good job so I could be stable. And there's so much that is lost there because I missed out on time with my family and I missed out on time because I'm, you know, feeling this pressure to assimilate at school. I lost out on this time that I could have been learning about my own identity and my culture. And I don't completely blame my circumstances because, you know, I also made choices and continued to make choices that leaned towards whiteness rather than being Filipino. So I take responsibility for that too. But there were circumstances that that added pressure to assimilate. And, you know, there is a there is a trade-off that I, I very much feel like I'm having to make up for now. And it's not like I'm trying to apologize for being asleep. It's just like, you know, I didn't get a lot of this history and education growing up. So I'm just trying to learn as much of it as I can now. One of the common experiences among a lot of Filipino Americans is that we don't learn, a lot of us didn't learn Tagalog growing up, which is one of the main main languages in the Philippines. I'm actually taking Tagalog classes right now, and all of my classmates are, you know, similar to, to my age in our late 20s or, you know, up to our 30s and 40s. Most or all of my classmates are there for similar reasons, that we didn't learn the language growing up and we we have this like huge desire to learn it now. So I can see, you know, in my community of Filipino Americans, there's this like striving to, to learn now what we didn't get to learn before. And so it's nice to kind of go through that with others. I love that. And I think to me, the theme of community shines through once again, right? The community of learning the language with one another, uh, even going back to the story of the Association of Filipino Scientists, the community that you guys were able to share, grieve, and heal through that experience, um, and ultimately the community that you're building through the Sago Show. On that theme of community, what are some of the big pillars of the community you're trying to build with your YouTube following? Is it specific values, specific ideas, ways of being, as well as, I mean, recipes are definitely a piece of it, but based on this wide-ranging and thorough conversation, I suspect there's a lot more intention and ethos behind the community you're building over there so we would love to hear kind of that vision of what kind of group community you're building well i think something that i hope viewers of the sago show come away with is that you know they feel like this yearning to learn more as much as they can i hope that my videos spark interest for them to learn more about Filipino history. And we've talked a lot about, you know, being proud in your culture. And, you know, I've talked about being proud as a Filipino. And I think that there is phase past that to question why have all of these circumstances occurred that led us to 
to be second generation, first generation Filipinos living in America. And so I think what like this identity work and learning about history um, can unlock, and I hope unlock for viewers, is that there is a you know very horrible human rights situation happening in the Philippines and that there are a lot of external beings in the Philippines that are causing us to not, you know, really have Philippine sovereignty over there. And so when we think about our own identity, I think it's not just for ourselves, but to question why did our parents have to come here? Why are they pursuing the American dream when they can't, when they're not able to stay in the Philippines and pursue that there? I do think like it's so important for us to do this identity work because we have to move to the next phase, which is how do we make things better for our own communities and how do we make things better for our homelands as well? Because all of this history, you know, it's all of these things that we learn about are still having effects right now. It's not like it just stops after the United States ended colonizing the Philippines. There are still effects now that cause the economic situation in the Philippines and the political situation in the Philippines today. So in my videos, I, I try to push the viewer on that um, and to, you know, be keeping current with the situation in the Philippines and to not just think about the identity journey ending with ourselves, but making a better, a better place for our future generations for our country too. That's beautiful on many levels and reminds me of uh, this book that I'm reading. I'll be brief about it, but I think the story you just told, the whole philosophy of the book is reorients Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs and says that it's ultimately flawed because that high triangle is self-actualization. But in fact, like self-actualization is still all internal based. The true next step to actualization is transcendence and ultimately looking out for one another, our communities, our cultures, all of those things, you know, like all of this identity work doesn't really do anything if we're keeping it all to ourselves. So I love the point that you just shared is that it's, you know, moving beyond the internal identity work and really sharing that with the world, kind of transcending past our own limiting beliefs, our own ideologies, historical traumas, all that kind of stuff, and really transcending, sharing that with communities that ultimately need, uh, need help, you know, and kind of with that said, do you have any like resources or examples of ways that listeners could contribute to those causes. You know, I think at this point we've flashed the billboard of do your identity work enough throughout the episode, uh, which we personally represent and love as well, but following, you know, those internal steps, what can people do to externally support, help and kind of pay it forward? I would say that there are two big ways to get involved that come to mind for me. The first is to get involved in your own communities locally to where you live. And perhaps this is a little harder when you're, li you're Filipino living in a place where there aren't a lot of other Filipinos. But I know in that in a lot of major cities, there are Filipino community organizations. And so I think it's, it's great to get involved at the local level. There are organizations here in San Francisco that help with delivering groceries to elderly in our community and that do a lot of community events for, for Filipinos. That's like a really, really important way to get involved is, is just in your own backyard, local, to see what things are going on to support Filipinos near you. And then on the 
more global movement level, there are also Filipino American based organizations such as Anakbayan and Malaya Movement. Gabriella and Leong Network have different chapters throughout the country that are organizations of Filipino Americans and allies that are keeping current with the situation in the Philippines and doing different campaigns in order to, to benefit uh, folks in the Philippines and also here in the U.S. as well, because, you know, there are a lot of Filipinos in the workforce that are suffering as well. We've lost many Filipino nurses to COVID-19. Um, we have a lot of Filipinos working out in the farms to, to bring food to our table. So I think there's a lot of places, but those are two places I would start. I think that's a really important question, Aiden, because I do want to preface for for the show that although a lot of our conversations and topics ensued and followed within this space is under the umbrella of Filipino culture, Filipino food, and Filipino American experience that Rachel shares. However, everything that we're talking about here and everything that Rachel shares can transcend the umbrella of Filipino culture. Like whether you're Korean American, Chinese American, Italian, German, American like Aiden is, uh, there are countless avenues that all of us can take this curiosity that's inspired by food in Rachel's case or whatever catalyzes your interest and passion and curiosity take that call answer that call and follow through whether it's one step or two step or three steps right because for Rachel's case she answered that curiosity and it went from a 12 series intended channel into now three seasons ended last year and she's continually expanding her brands by incorporating different innovative ideas and different history lessons that she deem as important. Um, so I just want to preface that for the listeners that uh, please don't be turned off only because this is Filipino-American specific, but I hope you take the ethos of what we're saying here and now apply that to your own culture, your own lineage, and your own history. Because we, I firmly believe that history is important because without truly understanding where you came from, it's hard to decipher where you're going next. Yeah, well said, Ben. And I think, you know, with all that said, it provides a beautiful through line to one of the questions we pose all the time. So Rachel, if you're given the opportunity to host a bit of a mentorship program, um, whether that's specifically Filipino American students or people coming out of college into the workforce, we'd love to hear some of your insights, advices, uh, largely informed from your own experience, but uh, I guess big lessons or pieces of advice that you'd like to pass down to people entering the world. The first one that I would definitely want to teach is, and it sounds trite, but just to think big. I feel like there was a lot of times in my life where I felt that I could only go down certain paths and that I you know, really had a narrow vision of, of what was possible in front of me. And if I had thought about things a little differently and, you know, maybe not thought of the future as paths, but just an open field where I could go wherever I wanted, maybe things would have been a, le a little less turbulent as I was going throughout the journey. But I think it's really important to, to think big and to push yourself on, on what you are able to do. Because I think that when you open your mind to different possibilities of of what you can achieve, it will surprise you that there are things that you might have never thought of that you could, could pursue. I don't think that 
when I was 14 entering high school, I would have ever thought that I would be still learning Tagalog at age 28, that I would be running a YouTube series about Filipino food history. And I would have never thought also that I would be a business analyst during the daytime. <laughs> I think that I had a really, a really narrow view of what was possible for me, but I was fortunate to have these opportunities to kind of nudge my way out of that tunnel vision. Think Big also applies to our identity work as well. And I would really want to push kind of the current narrative I hear a lot around representation in media for Asian Americans. I think that it is an awesome goal to see ourselves more represented and more stories told, but I think that there is also something bigger that Asian Americans and you know our own communities can be striving towards. And I think that that is to reflect on the current situations in our home countries that are affected by you know, U.S. imperialism and U.S. empire could talk a lot about that. But I think to to kind of push ourselves to think bigger than ourselves and see ourselves where we fit in our local society and global society. And then the third thing that I would encourage others, because many, many have encouraged me along the way, is to recognize the power of your own voice. And we talked about this earlier, but... I really, for a long time, felt like my voice didn't really matter, that, you know, what does a Filipino-American 20-year-old have to contribute to this conversation? You have everything to contribute, because someone may have never heard the thing that you're about to say, and it might challenge the way that they're thinking about things. Maybe even that you speaking is you speaking right now is going to, to help you formulate thoughts later on, so that the next time you speak, that there's going to be a whole different perspective that you have. I think that a lot a lot of Asian Americans that I grew up with, like we often felt really afraid to speak and I, I feel different, really much more empowered now to speak up about about things that I believe. And I think it's important for us to have our voices be heard. Yeah, that that was amazing. I, I don't even know what to say because I was just so caught up in the that emotional and heartfelt delivery. And that reminds me of this idea of like vulnerability strength, right? And of course, it's an idea popularized by Brene Brown. But one thing that I've spoken about this on Clubhouse during the summer last year was that a lot of white Americans, they have to seek discomfort by putting themselves in these uncomfortable spaces with different ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds and just different experiences, right? And this is what Aiden alluded to earlier with his privileges. But a lot of times what I realize is for someone that's outspoken like me who loves talking, when I'm in those spaces, I find myself as de facto spokesperson for my culture. And a lot of these discomfort that Brene Brown speaks to for white folks, we don't really have a choice but to seek discomfort. A lot of these Asian Americans' existence in the United States is predicated on discomfort. And that's why I think I appreciate this opportunity and what you said, Rachel, is that because of that inheritance burden that many Asian Americans or African Americans feel when they're in those rooms with other, maybe less minorities or maybe with other white folks in their room, because of that burden, perpetually, a lot of times we choose not to engage in these conversations because we felt that burden and we felt this discomfort throughout our existence, the entirety we've grown up in the United States with everything you said. Um, so I really appreciate that. And I, I do definitely want to echo that message where 
although we do have this inheritance pressure we're grappling with as, as a minority living in the United States for the rest of our lives. And that's a part of our identity that we can never erase. Unfortunately, it's part of the package we signed up for by coming to the U.S. But I hope that we do not shy away from that engagement, but rather we continue to engage because like what Rachel beautifully demonstrated, you don't know what you don't know and you don't know the possibility that could transpire in your life or, or the lives of others. Um, so with that, Rachel, I feel like this is the perfect segue because you speak so much on growth mindset and curiosity mindset and all those are affirmed by your passion and everything you've doing since last year through the show or in your interpersonal lives, which is very aligned with the ethos of a Discoverer podcast. So we have a challenge for you, Rachel, and this is a twofold question. Fold one is we would like to challenge you live on this show. What are some areas in your life that you'd like to discover more about? And I know the main intention for you this past year has been discovering more about your own history and your own culture and how that manifests in Filipino food in the United States. Uh, but what are some of your intentions that you have that you'd like to discover more about in this year? And secondly, what are some areas you'd like to challenge our listeners with to discover more in their respective lives after hearing this really unique and special episode with you this week? Something that I'd really like to discover more of this year, and this is actually something that a lot of my viewers have pushed me on, is to learn more about the regional varieties of, of food in the Philippines. That's one thing, because my representation of Filipino food on my channel is just going to be my experience of food, and it, it plays on the region of the Philippines where my parents came from. And so I actually don't know a lot about some the Southern Philippines or in the Northern Philippines, what those regional variations of different foods that, that I know, what they taste like. And I think in tandem with that, I talked a lot about my own experience and I acknowledge that my experience is not necessarily the same of every Filipino American. So it really resonated with, with me, what you said about feeling like you're you know, the, the one rep having to, to say everything. But I, I know that there are so many different experiences of Filipino Americans in the United States. And so one thing I want to push myself on this year is to, to hear from my viewers' stories. What things have they experienced growing up in, in places that I've never been to? So I think that there's a regional experience in the Philippines through food and also a regional experience here among Filipino Americans that that can be different. And I feel confident that, you know, having gone through this journey on my own, I'm, I'm really excited and ready to hear about those experiences from others and, and to learn more there. I would challenge listeners to learn more about your own history. I think that doesn't come as a surprise after I'm hearing us talk about this, but I think that it can unlock so much no matter who you are or where your family has come from, to learn about your family tree or to learn about your culture and the, the histories behind those cultures. And I acknowledge that that's really painful for a lot of us. When you read about your own culture's history, it can be really painful because the things that you read, sometimes atrocities, sometimes very traumatic things, happened to people that look like you, happened to people that were in your family. So it's not an easy journey by any means, but it's a great place to start because it's so transformative once you do start learning about it. Sometimes the you know most challenging journeys are the ones most 
worth walking often is something I've found in my personal experience. So I definitely appreciate you sharing there. Um, definitely a lot of really great takeaways that I personally am going to be marinating with. I can't not make a food bomb <laughs> in the bitch though. You know, really appreciate all of the insights and lessons you've brought to this conversation. It's been really, really awesome talking to you. Um, this is, you know, the time of the show we like to refer to as the red carpet, where we'd love to roll it down for you and let you present our listeners with ways that can connect with you, whether that's Instagram, YouTube, just whatever you've got going on. I uh, would love to connect them to you in any way possible. Thank you both for having me on the show today. My name is Rachel Lucero, and I'm the creator of The Sago Show. You can follow and subscribe on YouTube, The Sago Show, S-A-G-O Show. I recently published season three of The Sago Show, which is called The Coconut Tree, and it's all about issues that coconut farmers are facing and issues in the coconut farming industry as a whole in the Philippines and Southeast Asia. Um, and that's available on YouTube and also um, in short form on Instagram via Reels and on TikTok where I'm the same name there at Sago Show. I also wanted to leave folks with a couple of resources if you're interested in learning about Filipino food and Filipino food history. Uh, Doreen Fernandez is a very prolific writer, but one of her most influential works was Tikim, T-I-K-I-M which is a book um, with a collection of all of her really powerful essays on Filipino food. And another really, really amazing, powerful book about Filipino food and history is uh, one called Taste of Control, uh, Food and the Filipino Colonial Mentality Under American Rule. And that's by uh, Dr. Alexander Orquiza. And those were two really, really influential books for me when I was working on the Sago show. But again, I'm really, really grateful to you both for having me here today. It was awesome to talk to you. Likewise. Yeah, thank you so much. Like I said, I, I'm shameful to admit this, but I've always been geographically challenged. So honestly, I did not know Philippines had more than 7,000 islands. And I definitely learned a lot from this uh, two and a half hour conversation. And yeah, it's always a pleasure. And obviously we haven't caught up in the past four years. And I'm really grateful that technology like Instagram Reels allowed us to cross path again on the other side, talking about your such a fascinating and frankly unexpected journey that you embarked on for the past year. And of course, all the accomplishments, not just for the sake of achievements per se, but I think everything you've achieved with the statistics, with the analytics, with the featured interview at Eaters Magazine and everything in between, are nothing but extension and validations that you are indeed on the right path um, since pathfinding is a big topic for this interview so really grateful for your generosity and squeezing us in literally the first weekend of january so very grateful thank you for the kind words and with that to all the listeners uh happy new year once again we hope that 2022 gifts everyone with abundance of blessings and gratitude and love and to everyone that's still listening Thank you for listening, and with that, we hope you continue to discover more with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.